Well, welcome to this month's Ask Your Herb Doctor. My name's Andrew Murray. Uh, for those of you who perhaps have never listened to the shows, which run every third Friday of the month from 7 to 8 p.m., uh, my wife and I are both licensed medical herbalists who trained in England and graduated there with a master's degree in herbal medicine. And we run a clinic in Garberville where we consult with clients about a wide range of conditions and recommend herbal medicines and dietary advice. So you're listening to Ask Your Herb Doctor on KMUD Garberville 91.1 FM and from 7.30 until the end of the show at 8 o'clock, you're invited to call in with any questions, either related or unrelated to this month's subject of field biology. The number here if you live in the area is 9233911 or if you live outside the area, the toll-free number is 1-800-KMUD-RAD. And we can also be reached toll-free on 1-888-WBM-HERB for consultations or further information at the end of the show and Monday through Friday after business. Okay, so um, Dr. Pete. Oh, yeah, hi. Thanks so much for joining us again. Uh, I think, as always, um, for people here perhaps have never listened to you or never heard you or this is the first time, uh, would you just outline your academic and professional background and then uh, we'll start with the show. Um, I was a, a, a biology teacher uh, before... I uh, studied biology professionally, actually, about 10 years before. And uh, uh, during those years before I went to graduate school in biology, I had uh, uh, taught English and other subjects, but I had uh, done a lot of experimenting in, for example, bioelectric uh, subjects. And uh, uh, that that relates to the, the topic of of biological fields that, that had been a long time interest of mine good okay well um i guess i i kind of want to um pick out a little bit of a loose end from last month and i know uh, antioxidants were a subject that we covered so with antioxidants in mind i think it's very important that our listeners clearly understand what they've been led to believe by nutraceutical companies etc as beneficial nutrients may in fact not be so and that they should be treated with caution with reference to the action of blocking a certain antioxidant uh, reactive oxygen species uh, in the body. Um, uh, for example, uh, ascorbic acid functions primarily, I think, in the cell as an oxidant, uh, maintaining mm-hmm. cell structure and, and regulating uh, synthetic processes, uh, largely by its oxidative form, uh, dehydroascorbic acid. And, and so you don't want an excess of the reduced form. And uh, vitamin E had a history uh, really starting uh, as an anti-estrogen regulator of the sex hormones. And uh, uh, after it was discovered that uh, the unsaturated uh, fatty acids were causing uh, sexual uh, derangement, uh, sterility, especially in males, and uh, a brain decomposition, uh, then was when uh, vitamin E shifted over to, to be described as an antioxidant rather than as an anti-estrogen. And uh, still, it's uh, gradually being recognized as an anti-inflammatory agent, but, but it's still stuck in that mold of being called an antioxidant. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, so uh, with reference to um, cancer... 
and uh, the kind of new understanding we'll get into a little bit later on in terms of field biology and how cells are actually intelligent and they do communicate and they're not just a product of the um, the organism, but they drive the organism. Um, in, in terms of cancer and antioxidants, um, I think in particular relation to suppressing a reactive oxygen species as an antioxidant, what's the, do you know what the rationale is behind that? Um, yeah, yeah, they're um, thinking that the, the um, well, there, there are several inter- interpretations, but uh, one group uh, thinks that if you intensify the uh, reactive oxygen species, you'll be able to kill the, the cancer cells because they are defending themselves by their excess antioxidant capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but others uh, recognize that it's the reactive oxygen species that are causing the de-differentiation and aggressive, destructive uh, processes in, in the cancer cells. Uh, so the uh, reducing the formation of them uh, metabolically is the the safe uh, biological uh, uh, organized way to go about preventing cancer and preventing it really is part of uh, uh, curing the disease uh, some people uh, have uh, said that you can never tell when uh, a cancer is malignant until the patient is dead because the organism always has the capacity uh, for a spontaneous uh, recovery from any kind of tumor. Uh, it's very most often seen in melanomas because uh, you can uh, clip off a few bits of the tumor and, and see that it's definitely cancerous, but uh, there's spontaneous regression uh, seen uh, so often in, in melanomas, uh, simply because they're near the surface and visible. But I think uh, that spontaneous regression is, is probably going on all the time with many kinds of cancer. Yeah. Um, am, am I right in thinking that you uh, don't particularly advocate topical treatment of melanomas, for example? As a, uh... oh, definitely not, because so <laughs> yeah. many things will uh, disturb them. <laughs> disturb your uh, defensive reactions against them and, mm-hmm. and just annoy them and make them uh, try to uh, survive more intensely rather than more intelligently. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, interestingly, I, I come into contact uh, just here and there were several people who have had and or have um, skin cancers um, various, uh, you know, aberrant moles or, you know, um, darkened patches that are very regular borders and they've been told it's cancer. And I'm only, I'm only asking you the question about your, your view on topical treatment of these kind of tumors because, um, blood root is a very commonly touted, um, treatment. Uh, for these tumors and i've I've met people who have showed me patches on their arms or their legs that they've used um, blood root with and there's a site that is obviously looks a little scarred but um there's no presence of what was previously a a, a kind of discolored mole and how do you what are the active uh, chemicals in that. Well, it, it's, it's a, um, sanguinaria canadensis is a Latin name, so I'm sure sanguinarine and probably um, hydrastine or some other alkaloids are the, the uh, major. But it also contains tannins, so I know tannins have also traditionally been used for skin tumors. And um, uh, One of the uh, 
old things that uh, derive partly from herbal uh, knowledge uh, going back to the turn of the, the start of the 20th century was uh, thinking of of the uh, molecular structure of, of these things as catalysts of uh, energy production. Mm-hmm. Uh, William Frederick Koch uh, was one that uh, first proposed this, and it was developed later by Albert St. Georgi. Uh, and particular molecules were uh, explored by each of them, and what they had in common was uh, the activated uh, ketone structure, activated carbonyl uh, group, and uh, opposed by, uh, for example, activated amine groups uh, or um, uh, hydroxyl uh, groups, mm-hmm. uh, such as estrogen, uh, is in that uh, general irritating category. And uh, there are a lot of the tannin category of chemicals that on balance or in, in their most relevant part of the molecule have this oxidative catalytic function uh, that can restore uh, the oxygen production of energy. Interesting, because I know that sanguinaria does have very intense red, um, and I know in the past we've talked about um, intense red um, dyes or herbs or compounds that have this uh, kind of free radical quenching activity. Yeah, that means they're absorbing yeah. high energy particles. <laughs> okay, but you'd be, as far as you're concerned, though, you still don't advocate any topical use. Um, well, no, I think no. systemic is better yeah. uh, because of uh, everything contains impurities, and uh, uh, just a little bit of the wrong impurity can irritate uh, and uh, right. possibly direct uh, the cells in the wrong direction. But right. uh, I, I haven't experimented at all with, with any of those yeah. uh, older traditional things, but yeah. I did experiment on my own things. A couple of doctors at different times uh, were convinced that I had things that were uh, melanomas from their, their shape and behavior. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, probably a total of 15 or 20 times altogether <laughs> I've had things uh, popping up that were black and blue and growing quickly and changing shape. And uh, just by increasing uh, my thyroid systemically and putting uh, some DHEA and or progesterone on the skin adjacent to maybe an inch away from the uh, developing spot. Okay. Uh, within two or three days, you would see very intense changes happening. And, um, f- for example, the, the color would change from uh, blue and white to uh, a maybe an even brown color, and then uh, simply uh, the whole thing would melt away. Hmm. So it's, it's kind of like uh, giving the cells what they need to differentiate properly. Uh, otherwise, they... Uh, go off exploring what what they want to be to deal with the deficiency that they have. Yeah. And uh, I, I think uh, the body, uh, the, the particular areas they choose uh, seem to be areas that uh, the body is able to provide something that sustains their growth. And if you can let the body provide more of that, uh, 
increasing its energy, uh, then those cells can go ahead and uh, differentiate. Hmm. And the uh, reducing or antioxidant uh, direction of a cell is uh, interfering with differentiation. Uh, there are several uh, chemicals known as differentiating agents that some doctors are treating cancer with, and uh, what they have in, in common is a shift towards the oxidative balance of the cell. Hmm, okay. Uh, I, I guess lastly, I just wanted to say that I think from a... Uh, uh Oh, that's a scientific, if that's the right word, perspective. Irritation has always been known to be cancer-causing, and any cell gets chronically irritated, and I think that's probably where your, where your um, hesitancy with uh, topically addressing anything like that comes from. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, although I know there have been uh, very successful things. I've seen people with uh, pink spots uh, on their skin where they uh, uh, previously had had a, a, a very... Uh, aggressive tumor. I, I know an old woman who's, uh, uh, I saw her uh, when she was, uh, I think, 91, 92, and 93. And uh, uh, in between uh, my visits, I, I saw what, what had been a mole on, on the side of her uh, forehead uh, evolve into a, a, a hole where the bridge of her nose was eaten away by, by the Melanoma. And next visit, there was nothing wrong with her nose. The, the nose had grown back. Wow. Wow. Okay, you're listening to Ask Your Herb Doctor on KMUD Galbaville 91.1 FM. Uh, and from 7.30 to the end of show, 8 o'clock, you're invited to call in with any questions related or unrelated to this month's subject of field theory. Uh, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Raymond Pete uh, sharing his experience and his wisdom and his uh, latest findings on field theory, and we'll get into that in a moment. So, Dr. Pete, physiology is uh, clearly a subject where nothing's isolated or reduced per se, but one where there's clearly an association with a world of interacting mechanisms, albeit the assumption of one molecule being the prime mover of a directional shift can be misunderstood and knowledge can move along blind pathways. And last month you touched on James Watson as an example of an extreme reductionist now tending to be a little more open-minded in his understanding of biological interactions to some degree. How is science to be moved in the right direction and allow a paradigm shift in our understanding of disease, for example, to proceed along constructive and regenerative processes? Um, uh, well, those people who were uh, insisting on a kind of straight-line causality. Uh, they, uh, uh, Gregor Mendel, for example, uh, want, wanted traits to be eternal rather than uh, right. uh, occasional or accidental or changing. And uh, so he did his experiments to show that even though the pea plants were changing, uh, they had traits which were eternal. And uh, that got adopted by the... Uh, the gene people at the beginning of the century, and uh, uh, that led to uh, people like Watson identifying this eternal gene, except with the qualification that although it, it's like Mendel's eternal gene, it uh, can be changed, but only by chance, not by anything mm -hmm. uh, intentionally useful to the individual organism. And uh, all the at the same time that was going on, uh, other people were uh, showing 
evidence that the whole organism is um, influencing what happens to those uh, traits, that the uh, traits actually can be blended and, and changed uh, rather than being uh, discrete, uh, absolute, uh, causal uh, units. And uh, the, uh, the other kind of causality uh, is, is uh, recognizing that uh, at every level you have uh, a new kind of causality uh, working. Uh, Aristotle had a, a complex uh, view of causality, uh, uh, the substance and the intention and so on. And uh, with the, the development of cybernetics, this Aristotelian view of causality rather than uh, Plato's uh, uh, fixed, rigid uh, uh, view of the nature of things. The, the cybernetics people saw that the, each level of organization has its own laws and, and causal processes. And uh, uh, there were particular ulterior motives uh, driving each of these uh, greater views of uh, causality and of biology. And uh, it happened that uh, there were business interests that, that promoted the idea of uh, uh, genetic-based medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, each drug uh, could uh, identify an, a causal action on one of these causal genes. And, and so all through the 20th century, uh, there were uh, these uh, profit motives of, of selling drugs for diseases uh, supporting that idea of genetic causality. But then uh, the cloning and uh, stem cell uh, businesses started to be uh, seen as, as viable. Mm -hmm. And uh, th those were things that the reductionists had said absolutely right. couldn't exist. You can't have stem cells. You can't clone an animal from a, a body cell. Right. And, uh, so now that they saw that those could be a good business, they, they changed the history. And uh, uh, Barbara McClintock, who in the 40s and 50s had been treated rudely at, at, uh, when she would deliver a paper, mm -hmm. uh, in, in the 80s and 90s, she was pulled out of obscurity while she was still alive and given the MacArthur Grant and Nobel Prize uh, to create a new history that would justify cloning as a, a, and a, a genetic engineering, uh, changing the genes uh, as a, uh, something like a natural process. Uh, so so it's, uh, science is really being uh, driven not by uh, what's plausible or really ultimately helpful, but, but by what uh, these powerful institutions uh, see as something in their interest. Profit-driven, profit, profit driven. Yeah. Uh, turned into a, a business that can be uh, used to generate income to further the business. Okay, I think that's a fairly, uh, fairly common uh, world uh, game that's played in most businesses. Um, okay, so I know you've mentioned people in the 20s and 30s uh, who were prominent in their time and coming forward with some pretty novel and pretty groundbreaking uh, tenets 
surrounding things like field uh, theory and cell intelligence, but that was pretty quickly squashed by the evolving gene people who suddenly became the uh, became the dominant influence because uh, things could be sequenced and money could be made and it could be driven in a very orderly fashion, uh, one profit uh, profit laden product after another. So. The, the classic embryology uh, is where the, the field uh, thinking uh, really had its practical influence. And uh, uh, there were great implications for health in their experiments. For example, uh, uh, someone demonstrated that uh, knowing that you could take a part of a, a, an early embryo out of the embryo and the embryo would replace it, right. Uh, the cells weren't fixed. Uh, they could uh, fill in for each other. And you could move a cell from one place to another, and it would be, it, its fate would be changed by where you put it so that it could be developing along uh, the line to become a, a foot, and putting it another place, it could become a face. And uh, knowing that kind of field effect, uh, one researcher took a tumor uh, and cut off a tadpole's tail and grafted the tumor on where the tail had been, and the tumor was converted by the developmental field of the tadpole into a new tail. Hmm. Uh, so it's potentially a, a very uh, useful way of looking at the organism, that uh, cells are shaped by the inner environment, uh, as well as modifying the environment. Right, and not strictly, uh, so far as the science scientists are concerned, governed by the genes, uh, Im- immutable and uh, unchangeable. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I, th- I think that probably brings me on to uh, something I was uh, uh, pointed towards earlier on this afternoon was some work done by uh, Gunther Albrecht Buhler uh, in, a, in a paper that is called Cell Intelligence. And... Um, He'd been been working for about 30 years now and uh, suddenly became very interested in some of the dogma and mistakes that were being uh, touted in the genetic world and started looking at uh, cells and was very interested to find that a lot of uh, what he had been told as kind of unchangeable um, cell biology was actually quite mobile, quite flexible, and cells were certainly in his uh, in his lab displaying intelligence, as it were, in, in, in terms of, uh, I think it was the uh, infra, infrared light that they were um, subjected to. They would gravitate towards it, they would move towards it and make kind of informed choices about uh, directional, uh, you know, the direction that they would go in. And um, Yeah, the light has been, there's quite a bit of uh, evidence that light produced by the dividing cells and metabolizing cells is a signal. Uh, he's uh, arguing for infrared as a very important signal. Uh, the Gerviches in the 1930s uh, provided good evidence that there's ultraviolet frequency. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they demonstrated that it could uh, transmit uh, mitogenic uh, signals through a quartz glass, but not through ordinary glass, uh, that would filter out ultraviolet. Uh, but still, uh, the, that's uh, just uh, something that's hardly uh, been scratched. Uh, 
is currently probably uh, one of the leading people. Uh, Fritz Pope in Germany uh, has been another more recent one. Okay. All right. So in term, in terms of, um, I guess we'll get a little bit more specific now and we'll uh, start talking about some disease processes perhaps which have been uh, consigned to the genetic uh, bin, you know, your parents have it and you're genetically predisposed to it so there's not much we can do, and especially with things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease which have become very uh, very big news, I think along with diabetes in the last 20 years, um, suddenly becoming as much of a plague as cancer has been for the last 30 or 40 years and probably will have as little uh, attention given to it in terms of successful treatment um, so in terms of field theory then um, how how do you think this can be applied to the process within which uh, we kind of currently understand Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and diabetes, or the science people do? But how can it be applied to those conditions the way you understand it? Um, uh, well, uh, Albrecht Bueller uh, sees fields as uh, working both inside and outside the cell. So the cell has to have a, a very uh, organized meaning interpretation system for knowing uh, which set of genes to turn off to turn on and off in certain environments and uh, cells have to uh, uh, sort of reach out and manipulate the environment around them uh, conditioning their surroundings uh, to fit their needs and uh, so any change in the surroundings uh, that they can manage will help them uh, follow the, the course that uh, is um, best for the organism. The, the organism as a whole running into uh, stresses and problems uh, can change that uh, territory around the individual cells as well as the uh, uh, metabolism available to that cell. And uh, so you're changing the... the um, the surrounding structure and the metabolism, and uh, those function as as a single system. Uh, the metabolism is creating uh, the, uh, for example, collagen to uh, restore and, and renew its environment. Is produced under uh, more of it's produced under stress when lactic acid is present because there's not enough oxygen. And uh, lactic acid uh, turns on uh, many uh, of these reactive defensive processes that, as a signal to the organism, will tell the organism to deliver more, more oxygen, more sugar, uh, more nutrients to the cells. But if the cell doesn't get that what it needs from the rest of the organism, or if the field disrupting it is too intense, for example, mm -hmm. just um, a, a very intense uh, um, electromagnetic field, for example, right. uh, uh, almost any kind of, of disruptive field, ultraviolet, ionizing radiation, or intense radio frequency uh, can, can shift the cell or hold it, keep it from uh, maturing properly. But if the organism can uh, get the necessary materials to the cell, the cell uh, can recover. And in this recovery condition, uh, 
it, it part of the uh, recovery uh, will allow it to communicate so that if it's in the wrong place, it uh, might simply allow itself to collapse and be used as material for adjoining cells mm -hmm. uh, in the apoptosis process. Uh, but ordinarily, uh, even very deranged cells can begin functioning and participating constructively if they get the right uh, materials. But lactic acid is, is one of the basic uh, disrupting signals if it continues too long. And uh, it, it turns out that uh, one of the basic features of diabetes is that they can't oxidize sugar all the way to carbon dioxide. Instead, they produce lactic acid. And uh, if that continues too long, uh, lactic acidosis uh, is very often what diabetics used to die from. Uh, but any of these stresses will uh, interfere with the ability to uh, oxidize glucose in the brain or uh, blood vessels uh, in the organ that's uh, under too much stress and not getting repair materials will uh, shift over to producing lactic acid. And uh, the lactic acid then, uh, is a, a stress signal and uh, an immune signal for the rest of the organism. And that uh, kind of reminds me, and I know we've discussed this previously on uh, shows at various parts through various shows, but um, lactic acid, now this is something that I think most people can identify with. Well, there's two forms of it perhaps that most people will uh, probably quite uh, commonly associate it with. One, I would think, would be in uh, yogurt, uh, lactic acid formed uh, during the fermentation process, but I think probably more commonly still during exercise, um, when people exercise their muscles, when either running or aerobically exercising, the lactic acid that builds up in the muscles is often felt as a cramp. And this is the same lactic acid that you're saying is completely a destabilizer of the cell and um, uh, quite disruptive to the field. Yeah, a, a very well-developed uh, de athlete will uh, not produce... Uh, lactic acid too easily. Hmm. A, a sedentary person who is forced to exercise will be flooded with lactic acid because they haven't developed the system for delivering oxygen and uh, fuel to the tissues. Uh, so uh, a really good athlete is, is resistant to, to producing lactic acid. And huh. uh, carbon dioxide produced by a healthy metabolism uh, directly participates in suppressing lactic acid and in maintaining and promoting oxidative energy production. And uh, a place where you can see this is uh, people who live at high altitudes mm -hmm. where the, uh, the balance between oxygen and carbon dioxide uh, leaves their bodies having a higher residual carbon dioxide level. Uh, they can... Uh, work very intensely without producing lactic acid. Uh, that's called the, the lactate paradox sometimes because ordinarily oxygen deficiency is what turns on lactic acid. But once you get adapted and are able to produce a lot of carbon dioxide or hold it in your tissues, then that in itself prevents this toxic formation of lactic acid. 
Interesting. So the, the ad, is this adaptation a, a different type of adaptation to the um, red blood cell increasing adaptation uh, with exposure to altitude that mountaineers train for and that kind of thing? Is this different? Uh, yeah, it, it's part of it. It's part of it. The, the tissues uh, in themselves, the, they develop more mitochondria and uh, the, the um, enzymes that regulate carbon dioxide shift and the the uh, red blood cell itself uh, uh, doesn't deliver all of its carbon dioxide when it gets to the lungs. Mm-hmm. It picks up uh, as much oxygen as, as it can, but at a lower oxygen pressure, that means the blood is still retaining a slightly higher amount of uh, CO2. Okay. Uh, I had another question for you, and that was uh, regarding lactate. Um, how how feasible? I know we work with people who regularly get blood work done, um, and depending on what their blood work looks like, there's uh, various reasons for suggesting changes to their diet or lifestyle. What do you think of lactate testing as as a means um, to ascertain whether somebody truly is under stress, and and what would be the best way to do it? I mean, at what time of the day or would that have a, a bearing on how much lactate was present in a in a blood sample? Um, yeah, the uh, probably the time <coughs> that you're feeling the stress would be the best time to measure it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, if you uh, do it when you're fasting, uh, you're going to get a different measurement. You just have to know what time of day and what the circumstances are. Uh, but. It's increasingly being used, for example, to uh, diagnose uh, cancer and monitor the progress right. uh, uh, when the cancer is is uh, being regressed. Uh, the lactic acid in the serum goes down. Uh, do, what, have you any idea what kind of uh, state of uh, development of a tumor that lactic acid would be increased? Oh, it uh, starts showing up in the blood at a very early stage. Very early, okay. And, uh, at a certain point, uh, I don't remember the exact uh, concentration, but uh, it uh, in itself causes an inactivation of the immune system that should be helping to correct the, the cancer. Hmm. But uh, even before that, it can be seen as a, a product of the cancer. Yeah. Uh, I, I expect somebody would probably have to have... Uh not just one spot check, um, but uh, several over a period of weeks just to see whether or not the level of uh, lactic acid in the body was holding fairly stable or stably high or whether a high reading may be just an aberration uh, yeah, due to something. Uh, since uh, everyone over the age of 50 has cells that can be diagnosed <coughs> as cancer, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's a good idea not to be panicked by yeah. any measurement that could indicate cancer. It's simply a, a, a sign. For example, if you ate something uh, very disagreeable, your lactic acid would go up just from the general inflammation. And uh, so you want to take everything in context. Yeah. And even if it's being produced by a cancer, uh, most cancers don't kill people. Uh, since uh, in, in adults, cancer, if you look carefully enough, you can find cancer-like cells everywhere in, in every one of mm-hmm. middle age or more. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's, 
something that's naturally uh, being cured spontaneously. Right. And, uh, and, and this is in, in the same vein that uh, cells are constantly communicating with each other. They're just they're not um, blind or dumb. They're completely uh, autonomous uh, and are actually able to communicate with each other and uh, change the environment in which um, the, the, that particular area is uh, subject to. Yeah, I, I think that same thing applies to the uh, degenerative nerve diseases uh, and all of the uh, age-related, uh, stress-related diseases. Mm-hmm. I think there there's not an all-or-nothing definition of the disease. Uh, if you notice uh, a trend starting that doesn't look favorable, then it's time to change the way you live. <laughs> Okay, so uh, if carbon dioxide is uh, analogous to an anti-lactate, uh, as you've mentioned here, what would be the best we- method to, to raise this, and how long does that effect last? Um, everything that keeps <coughs> your um, free fatty acids from being released, uh, and those are released by uh, too much adrenaline, for example, uh, many of the hormones, um, pituitary hormones in general, help to um, increase the toxic free fatty acids, and uh, everything you can do to uh, lower the stress hormones. Uh, aspirin, for example, is a good anti-inflammatory, anti-stress agent. Vitamin E is another uh, protective uh, ascorbic acid. Uh, in uh, Ordinary foods uh, provide uh, abundant amounts of ascorbic acid, uh, so I don't recommend that as a supplement Right. So this is why you're so big on orange juice, huh? Uh, yeah, and um, meat, eggs, milk, everything, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. vegetables of all sorts contain sure. like uh, ascorbic acid, but meat contains it in the dehydroascorbate form, where mm-hmm. uh, people measuring the reduced form overlook it. Okay. All right, I think we have a couple of callers who've uh, kind of... Uh, flashing up the lights in the studios here. So um, let me just uh, let me just get the uh, let me just get the word from the engineer here. Okay. Uh, so our first caller is uh, from Northern Australia. <laughs> okay. So let's let's say caller. You're on the air. Oh. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Where are you? You're from Northern Australia. You say. No, no, I'm from Melbourne, Australia. Oh, okay, Melbourne. Sorry, Southern Australia, South, South East Australia. Victoria, rather. Oh, Victoria. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, g- g- glad to have you on the show. What's What's your question? Hi, uh, Doctor Tate. How are you? Um, my question is in relation to electromedicine and where uh, George Lobskowski and Royal Wright had produced certain wavelength particular pathogens and mm-hmm. also Dr. Rob Beck and Hilda Clark have mm-hmm. come up with the machine where they call the zappers where you place them in your palm on your arteries yeah. on your wrist particular mm-hmm. pathogens I just want to know whether or not those machines are viable or is it true does it really work and also uh, drinking ozonated water is there any health benefits to it okay all right well Dr. P I know uh, the first question about uh, electromedicine and rural rife uh, uh, the first one was, I, I missed... The, uh, uh, the the caller was asking about Rife and the uh, Rife machines that were oh, used. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. And the viability uh, of it. Um, 
there um, definitely is is something to the principle, but uh, I, I've never seen evidence that it it, uh, it is uh, as specific as many of the people claim it to be. Uh, I, I know people who use apparatus of that sort, and uh, I think it's acting probably as a, a stimulus rather than having that specific action that that the Rifians claim right. for it. Right. Okay. His other question was uh, ozonated water. Uh, do you have any thoughts on ozonated water? I think uh, he's using it for health benefits. I, I think um, ozone is, is too toxic right. in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, superoxide radical, which, which is produced by ionized uh, air and, and some ionized uh, water, uh, that can be beneficial uh, as part of a detox system in, in uh, the lungs, for example, from ionized air. But uh, I would be very careful with uh, either ozone or peroxide containing uh, water. Okay. Okay. Thanks very much, Dr. Pete. Thank, thank you for your, your call, caller. Okay, so, Engineer, was there another call on the air on? Okay, so let's take, let's take the next caller and uh, see what we think here. Hi, you're on the air? Hi, I had a question about an herbological protocol for Lyme's disease. Okay. Uh, Dr. P, I know you've got a fairly specific view of Lyme disease. Um, uh, the caller's asking about Lyme disease protocol. Oh, uh, well, there's a lot on the Internet suggesting that it's a lifetime project, but uh, there's also quite a bit of information that uh, says that two or three weeks with the right combination of antibiotics uh, almost always uh, cures it. Uh, so I think it's good to uh, look widely, take get a second, third, and fourth opinion before you commit yourself to a very, very prolonged uh, protocol. How, how do you feel about the, uh, the, uh, the the pathogen itself in terms of uh, what the, uh, the scientists or the doctors uh, identify as the organism that causes it? Oh, um, the that class of bacteria, the, uh, the spirochetes in general, uh, some of them uh, can be no. very harmful. Does what really exist? Uh, the what? I'm sorry. Okay, carry on. I'm sorry. Oh, oh I was just saying that uh, some of the, the spirochetes are, are very toxic and harmful and long-lasting. Uh, so it, it's good to, uh, if, if you have any symptoms, uh, it's good to check it and, if necessary, uh, have the uh, proper antibiotic treatment. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, selling services that uh, some doctors want to make it a, a many-year project of, <laughs> of treatment and recovery. Okay. All right. Well, you're listening to Ask Your Herb Doctor on KMD Garbable 91.1 FM. Um, from now till the end of the show, you are welcome to call in with any questions uh, related or unrelated to this month's subject uh, of field biology and uh, uh, things around that nature. So the number, if you live in the area, is uh, 923 3911. Or if you're outside the area, uh, like the chap from Melbourne was, <laughs> or Victoria, uh, there's an 800 number, 1 800 KMUD RAD.
Okay, so um, I'm always I'm always getting asked uh, questions about nutrition, and this is from people also who've uh, been quite uh, quite fastidious in following your recommendations. Uh, Dr. Pete, what I've got a question regarding newborns, and um, okay, so the World Health Organization actually advocates a four year breastfeeding uh, for for newborn babies, and I think that's awesome. Um, I think current trends, unfortunately. Not in all population, but current trends, certainly in city dwellers who are just too busy to have children, uh, wean them as quick as possible and feed them as soon as possible just so that they are uh, kind of independent. I know that you definitely don't advocate that and for very good reasons. So what do you think um, would be the best possible start for a newborn in terms of nutrition? Uh, well, uh, breastfeeding naturally, but w- with the mother well-fed and happy and uh, unstressed because uh, when the mother's under stress or, or not properly nourished, uh, the composition of the milk shows it. And uh, the milk, uh, good milk, contains a lot of uh, blood sugar uh, uh, converted into the lactose of the, of the milk and uh, hormones, some thyroid and progesterone and a lot of immune factors. Uh, so the, even if a baby has a, an endocrine problem, uh, as long as it's uh, getting good milk, uh, something like hypothyroidism often doesn't show up uh, just because the milk is so rich in these protective factors. Hmm. Okay. All right. I know we have a, a couple more callers, so let me just... Uh... Okay, well, let's take this next caller. It's actually uh, uh, about a very similar subject. But, Dr. Pete, um, the caller, you're on the air. Hello? Hi, you're on the air. And where are you from? Yeah, um, I'm from Salmon Creek. I'm local. Okay. I had a question, something about you said about Lyme disease. I believe you said it takes it's a three-month protocol on antibiotics and that cures it. Is that what you said? Uh, yeah, sometimes it, it disappears in just two or three weeks. I know a lot of people on Lyme disease, and I've never seen that work ever that quickly. Um, what pro- is there some special protocol you're speaking of? Um, you, you can find uh, several articles uh, on PubMed that are very good, and uh, I think part of the uh, problem that makes it seem so incurable is that uh, it often is uh, uh, misdiagnosed uh, they recognize uh, evidence of an infection, but they don't recognize uh, uh, any clear signs of improvement uh, because in many cases the person just isn't eating right or has other uh, pathogens in their environment. Okay. I just I just know, like, groups of people that are diagnosed with Lyme disease and are tested positive with Lyme disease. And they've been seeing a doctor for usually a couple of years of taking antibiotics, and they don't have the improvement that you're talking about. So I'm extremely curious. I, th- I think the other thing, just to interject, caller, is that um, more often than not, 
when people may well test positive, I think a lot of the population would actually test positive on an ELISA test for uh, Borrelia antibodies, etc., or whatever is now used uh, to currently uh, diagnose Lyme's. They have a lot of other metabolic defects, and I think that in particular is what causes people to be so um, so sick, as it were, and especially um, with the uh, protocols that are used for not just antibiotics but other fairly heavy heavy drugs, um, I think yeah. these can really play into someone's downfall. And like we spoke about earlier, Dr. Pete mentioned, the, the kind of energetics in the body that gets, uh, once someone's exposed to so many drugs and so many chemicals to try and supposedly cure something, it's very difficult for the organism to respond appropriately. And it's more of a, uh, more of a kind of a failure of the organism under the barrage of uh, drugs and chemicals to treat that. That's the problem. Oh, uh, yeah, okay, you know. So where in PubMed would I find this protocol you speak of? Is it pretty um, obscure? Oh, no, just look for uh, Borrelia or Lyme disease and antibiotic treatment. Okay. Yeah, because I know a bunch of people that have Lyme disease, and they definitely have it. They have all the symptoms, mm-hmm. and they're positive. Yeah. And they remember to take bite and everything, and yeah. have all the, you know, and it would have definitely help them to get rid of it. Yeah, well, it's going to be taking a while with their doctors, but if there's another alternative, that would be great. Well, I think I think the other thing, again, just to add to that uh, question, caller, is that um, in terms of metabolic energy that we as, you know, organized living beings have a need in order to survive everything. Every, I always say to people that every transaction that we ever make in this world with our bodies costs something. And in terms of metabolic energy to fight disease or to digest your food, it all costs energy, and that ATP yeah. has to be uh, has to be uh, derived from something. And so, nutrition is extremely important. And and I know Dr. Pete does a lot of um, a lot of uh, advocating nutrition as a way to restore health rather than drugs or you know. That's like chemicals. the big of controversy. It seems like everybody has their own take on nutrition. Some <laughs> people are low carbs, some people are high carbs, some people are vegan, which I don't. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of science behind it. It's not just hearsay. And Dr. Pete spent a long time um, researching this. And so, uh, as I said before, it, most people can be uh, chronically malnourished, uh, not maybe to skin and bones, but chronically malnourished or uh, assaulted, if you like, by the kind of foods they're eating that are blocking thyroid function. And if that's right. the case, then it's very difficult to generate enough metabolic energy to right, deal right. with it. That, that does make sense. Where is the information where the right kind of diet for a person to... Well, to uptake, to have the right kind of metabolic energy and take the right kind of medication together. Is there any information on that? Well, if you want, you can uh, you can email me anytime uh, Monday through Friday, um, and I can point you to the right direction of all those kind of things that Dr. Uh, Pete, and your email is? It's Andrew at uh, westernbotanicalmedicine.com. I'm sorry, at what? Western. Western. Botanical. Medicine. Medicine.com, yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, you're welcome. So okay, th- thank you much. Yeah. Bye. I think we have another call on the air. Yep. Okay, caller, you're on the air. Where are you from? Hello? Hello? Hi, you're on the air. Yes, hello? Am I on? Yes. Okay, um, yes, I think one of the things that, um, about Lyme disease that hasn't be, been addressed is that you mentioned that it's from a spirochete, which means it's similar to syphilis. And syphilis goes, has a, a first stage, a second stage, and a third stage. Mm-hmm. And I've always heard that Lyme disease did also. And if you catch it in the first or second stages, it can be cured with antibiotics, just like syphilis. But if it goes into the third stage, 
before it's treated, that's when it's really difficult and takes a long time and a complicated protocol to try to deal with it. And I think a lot of people don't know they have it until it enters the third stage. But you haven't mentioned anything about the first, second, and third stage. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Pete, what have you got to say about primary, secondary, and tertiary syphilis in relation to um, Borrelia? I I think it's probably analogous. uh, Uh And and, uh, the... the, um, the right antibiotic is needed to, to treat tertiary syphilis. Mm-hmm. But, uh, something that gets into the brain and nervous system right. will do it. Right. I know you're, a, you're a, very, a, a very strong advocate of antibiotics, and I understand the rationale behind it completely. So, again, it's, uh, it's unfortunate a lot of people associate antibiotics with something that's bad and they shouldn't take, but it's, uh, it's actually a, a, very, uh, a very valid um, part, of, uh, part of medicine. Okay, so... I don't know whether any other callers. No. Okay. Well, I know we've got a few more minutes, uh, Dr. P. And I, I just wanted to uh, um, just talk about a few of the many, <laughs> many names and the many authors that you've mentioned in the past, just so that uh, people are listening to the show or uh, would download um, this show later on in their own time and, and re-listen to it. We'd have a chance to look up some of the people that you uh, you commonly mention. So uh, I know you you talked about. Uh, We've, we've mentioned him in the past too, Mikhail uh, Polanyi. Uh, so he's um, been pretty uh, dominant in field um, field theory. Uh, and then I know you mentioned uh, earlier on a uh, Hungarian astrophysicist, Attila Grand Pierre, was it? Uh, Grand Pierre, yeah. Yeah, Grand Pierre. Okay. And his ideas, uh, uh, there's a video by Michael Persinger uh, called No More Secrets that uh, talks about some of the field interactions that Grandpierre is writing about. Uh, they're um, very interesting, but um, uh, the, um, the details are um, in so many fields. It, it's, uh, I'm, I'm not sure how practical either of them are. <laughs> okay. I know you've mentioned also in the past P.K. Anakin, um, as a uh, as somebody who was uh, studying uh, CO2 and uh, looking at um, the acceptor of action, uh, as it were, conditioning and conditioning reflexes and their responses. Yeah, that that was uh, an antecedent for uh, uh, cybernetics. He was a, a colleague and student of Pavlov, and uh, he uh, devised this uh, cybernetic interpretation of reflexes. Uh, which uh, sees the uh, model of the world that we have in our consciousness as determining uh, how the reflex works. And it's our purpose reflex, actually. Uh, So it's a very interesting concept, but it it makes a a very simple way of interpreting uh, other other fields, such as Hans Selye's stress, process, uh, if you see it in terms of P.K. Anokin's acceptor of action and, and how, the, uh, uh, how the, the, the meaning of a particular stress and how the body is, is responding uh, governs the field all the way down to the cell and the chemistry of the cell uh, is responsive to, this, to the meaning of the stress. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then there was that Noam Chomsky, uh, and you've met, I know you have quite a 
quite a uh, quite an affection towards William Blake as well as uh, uh, part of your early earlier um, exploits. Uh, yeah, uh, Blake <laughs> saw things uh, in, in a very holistic, cosmic uh, way, as well as very biological, uh, soundly based in the organism. And then there was uh, Dostoevsky's the, um, a Diary of a Strange Fellow, wasn't it? Or uh... Uh, Yeah, uh, various <laughs> translations of that. Uh, some of them are easier to understand than others, but... Uh, uh, about the uh, uh, essential meaningfulness of experience and reality. Yeah. Okay, well, I guess we're getting to the top of the hour, and I just wanted to mention a few of those authors just so people could uh, uh, recapitulate and um, perhaps look them up, Google them, search out what they did, and uh, find out that a lot of brilliant scientists have done lots of pioneering work in the past, and unfortunately with the advent of science and the money that was uh, being produced by the science and the uh, patenting of and etc um, that these people have been pushed into the background um, but had some very interesting uh, direction that they were going in and fortunately uh, with uh, the internet and uh, people being disillusioned with the way medicine's going these things are becoming more common again as uh, postdocs etc take up these uh, previously relegated uh, concepts and they're bringing them back to life again by their own work so I uh, really appreciate all those people that you mentioned on the show and just want to make sure that uh, we've put them out on the air again so people can find out that these are not just quacks, they're, they're actually very brilliant people who had, most of them are Nobel Prize winners too so thank you so much for joining us again Dr. Pete I um, really appreciate your time Okay, so for people who have uh, joined in, uh, Dr. Pete's uh, website, full of uh, articles, fully referenced, everything that he says uh, can be traced back, you know, can trace his, uh, his uh, citations on the web, uh, and all of his newsletters are fully referenced. So uh, www.raypeat.com, an excellent resource. As uh, a very altruistic man, very humble. I'm sure you probably pick that up when you hear him. Um, brilliant that he shares his knowledge the way he does i so appreciate his time um for those of you who've uh, listened to the show the third friday of every month and we can re- we can be reached at www.westernbotanicalmedicine.com and or email me andrew at westernbotanicalmedicine.com monday through friday or the weekend doesn't really matter uh, nine to five and um, thanks so much for your time All right, that was Ask Your Herb Doctor. We got uh, support for K-Mud comes from Inn of the Lost Coast and Shelter Cove, Fireplace, Spa, and Sauna 